I'm Jason Chaffetz. I'm Katie Pavlich. I'm Steve Ducey. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, September 22nd, 2020. I'm Trey Yingst. Peace negotiations with the Taliban are ongoing as breakthroughs seem within reach. Whatever one thinks of the politics surrounding it, there is this chance for the two Afghan sides to talk to each other. There's no guarantee it'll work out. But even to start the process, that is truly historic. This is the Fox News Rundown, global pandemic. (music) Afghanistan has been plagued by war and terror for decades. Over the next few minutes, you'll get the latest headlines on the global COVID-19 outbreak and hear from Johnny Walsh, a senior expert on Afghanistan at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Starting first in the U.S., where a new congressional report details how China could have helped to prevent the COVID-19 outbreak. The 96-page document, authored by Republicans in the House Foreign Affairs Committee, shows that China covered up early coronavirus data. The report goes on to say, quote, it is beyond doubt that the CCP actively engaged in a cover-up designed to obfuscate data, hide relevant public health information, and suppress doctors and journalists who attempt to warn the world. Now to India, where 75,000 new cases were reported in the past 24 hours. The number is high, but it's the lowest daily count for India in months. The famed Taj Mahal has reopened despite a continued rise in cases and a sharp decline in tourism numbers. Finally, in Afghanistan, officials are warning of a second wave. The country reported over 39,000 total cases and more than 1,400 deaths. Low testing numbers and limited access to many parts of the country makes it difficult to grasp the true severity of the outbreak. So as the country fights COVID-19, there is another battle that could be ongoing. Well, I think the most important thing to know is that a peace process in Afghanistan is the only really plausible happy ending for this very long conflict. This is Johnny Walsh, a senior expert on Afghanistan at the U.S. Institute of Peace. I think a decreasing and small number of Americans want to see us in Afghanistan forever and ever the way we have been for 19 years. And while there are certainly people who'd like to just pull out immediately, the consequences that would reverberate back to us, I think, pretty quickly, they're really severe from a terrorism crisis to a humanitarian crisis, potentially uh, very likely a refugee crisis if the state just fell apart. And so last week, uh, peace talks started between the Afghan government and the Taliban. And this was made possible because of the agreement that the U.S. signed with the Taliban about six months ago. So that's pretty historic progress. And as with any potential political settlement, it is immensely complicated trying to get two, you know, often diametrically opposed sides to agree on what the future government of Afghanistan would look like. And especially in this case, where the Taliban have some, you know, views that virtually no one in the rest of the world would countenance um, as as extremely religious conservative militant group. Um, but it's an enormous opportunity. Um, there have been years of efforts to get the parties talking directly, and they finally started, and they seem to be doing it really in good faith and with a, a constructive atmosphere surrounding the talks, at least so far. What are some of the difficulties that a peace process like this will face? We're already seeing reports this week of renewed clashes between Afghan security forces and the Taliban while these talks are ongoing. And I imagine this is pretty common for any past effort that we've seen out of Afghanistan? Yeah. Um, So the list of difficulties is long. I would say the single biggest challenge is just the enormity and complexity of the issues on the table from 
how to share power, to what to do with all the fighters, to how to um, satisfy the Taliban's desire for a more Islamic system without violating the gains that Afghanistan has made since 2001 um, that virtually the entire country holds really genuinely dearly. Um, And so that's number one. A second big one, as you mentioned, is that the war hasn't stopped. And uh, while a ceasefire is a major issue that the sides have to discuss, there's no agreement that the sides have to stop fighting just to allow talks to happen. And in fact, as is common in conflicts like this around the world, the insurgents tend to feel that the ability to inflict violence is where all their leverage comes from. And it is where all their leverage comes from. So the violence is likely to continue at least for a while. And that does not help the climate. Um, and you know, people will perceive bad faith, uh, almost inevitably as a result of the ongoing attacks. And then another thing <clears throat> looming over this is that the U S presence has an enormous role. Um, the Taliban are in this in part because they want to see a pathway to a U.S. withdrawal. The U.S. has leverage because its troops are in Afghanistan, but that troop presence is subject to much larger political currents in the United States. It, it would be true at any time. It's all the more true during an election season and, and with a potentially new administration having to make this decision in you know, a relative matter of months. I do want to dive into the American angle and, and the U.S. troop withdrawal and how that's playing into the current peace negotiations. Uh, first, though, could you describe for our listeners who aren't familiar what it's like in Afghanistan in terms of the land that the Taliban controls? I mean, I think this is one of the world's most unique conflicts in the sense that there is so much territory that is maintained by the group. And it does give them leverage that they can continue acts of violence amid these sorts of talks. Yeah, that's true. Um, the Taliban control a pretty sizable percentage of rural Afghanistan. Um, it is very difficult to pin down accurately, like what percentage either side controls, either of the population or of the landmass. Um, and oftentimes it's very gray. Um, for example, areas where the government controls it, but the Taliban has um, partially co-opted how education and health services are provided, for example. So it can just be uh, a little bit ambiguous. But ultimately, the the Taliban have uh, provided their own model of governance across, especially in the south and east parts of the country where they're strongest. You know, they control a large amount of the countryside, but no major cities. So you could you could oversimplify the conflict as uh, the front line is a sort of jagged beltway around every city in Afghanistan, whereby the government pretty much always controls the city. The only times the Taliban have taken cities, they've lost it within a day or two. Um, and and outside that that beltway of sorts, um, it is often no man's land. And in some cases, Taliban control is quite strong. And what that ultimately means for the talks is that both sides are very militarily strong and there is no military solution anytime soon. That's not to say that the sides aren't ready to keep fighting if these talks don't work out to their liking, but it could be a very long time because the, the, an, essentially a stalemate has been intact for several years now. You've been listening to Johnny Walsh, a senior expert on Afghanistan at the U.S. Institute of Peace. We'll be right back. It's a really interesting way to visualize how they control rural land. You described this jagged map outside of cities. 
I do want to ask you about the U.S. presence and how that's playing a role. We've seen from the Trump administration promises to continue the reduction of U.S. forces in Afghanistan, and it's a pretty popular campaign platform, even for both sides of the aisle, just because this is a war that Americans have become so accustomed to that major developments, even when they do involve American forces, don't even make the front page of the New York Times or the Washington Post. And it's the same way across the broadcast networks. It's just not a story that is on the minds of Americans on a daily basis. How is the troop level playing into the current talks? And you take us back a few months when this deal was signed between the Taliban and the Americans. What did that do to the ability of the Afghan government to move forward with their own set of talks? Um, Well, to take the first part of the question, I think that Anyone who works on this peace process, number one, overwhelmingly, our motive is to uh, try to find a healthy, non-disastrous way to wind down the U.S. troop presence. Like, these talks are supposed to be the responsible exit strategy. So stipulated that that's kind of, from the U.S. perspective, one of the main points of, of advancing a peace effort. I would say that in a perfect world, no matter who's in office, you'd like to see reductions in the troop presence um, pinned to milestones in the peace process. In other words, it would be nice to get something in return, principally from the Taliban. So, you know, we withdraw a certain amount of troops when we see them take an important step on the process. And occasionally that's happened in a loose way. But as, as anyone can see, I mean, for both parties, the troop presence in Afghanistan and other countries is tied up in larger concerns, political and otherwise, and isn't always as directly pinned to realities on the ground as one might like. On your second question, in terms of how uh, there's a common narrative that I, I think you're getting at, that by negotiating directly with the Taliban, that the U.S. undercut the Afghan government, who are our, our real partners in the country of long standing. I would just encourage people to recall that the current talks between the Taliban and the government would never have started without the U.S. having reached this agreement with the Taliban beforehand. And having worked at the State Department on this problem for, you know, basically the whole last decade, every peace effort that we've made was about trying to get the Taliban and and Afghan government talking to each other and not getting in the way and talking to the Taliban directly. Taliban were very consistent that they would only talk to the government once they had this understanding in place with the U.S. on a timetable for our troops to leave. So I don't mean to bog down in the details, but what the U.S. did by negotiating with the Taliban allowed the biggest opening for the government to get its own day at the negotiating table. I really don't think there's any other way that this would have happened. Yeah, for sure. That's really important insight. And I've heard that a lot in Washington, this idea that the administration taking their own side negotiation could have undercut the Afghan government. But you're spot on. I mean, these talks were just not ever going to happen in the capacity that they're happening now, had it not been for the Americans moving forward with their own deal ahead of time. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I would just add to that, if I might, that there are very smart people who've worked this problem for a long time who bitterly oppose the way that the U.S. handled this by first talking to the Taliban directly. And I respect a lot of those people immensely. But I've just, having personally spent so many years involved in the efforts to not do it this way, 
to get the parties talking to each other without going through us first. It, it was all unsuccessful, and the Taliban position never changed. And the only result of spending so many years doing that was years more conflict of what's become the most violent, deadly conflict in the world. Um, so I, I think it was so important to try something different, and thus far it's worked. Um, whatever one thinks of the politics surrounding it, there is this chance for the two Afghan sides to talk to each other. It, there's no guarantee it'll work out, but even to start the process, that is truly historic. Yeah, it certainly moves the ball forward. And I mean, why do you think that is? Were the Taliban looking for legitimacy on the international stage? I mean, the critics of this administration said that it was unacceptable to have someone like Mike Pompeo standing alongside Taliban leadership because these images, in a way, really strayed from the normalization that were the normalization that was set into place by numerous previous administrations, basically the simple idea that the United States doesn't negotiate with internationally recognized terrorists. And then you saw these images, but as you've noted, it took this sort of meeting and this sort of deal to move the ball forward. So it's indisputable that the Taliban have reaped a degree of international legitimacy from the U.S. government, Afghan government sides. That's one of the downsides of this process. They would not have had photo ops with the Secretary of State before this happened. I don't think that's fundamentally what's driving the Taliban here. There's two things fundamentally driving them. One is they have always wanted the withdrawal of foreign troops more than anything else. It is the deepest ideological objective for them. And so getting some kind of pathway to that, that's what's keeping them in the game here. The art form is to try and deliver enough of it without allowing the country to fall apart. Second is that the Taliban also look at this horribly bloody stalemate that the war has devolved into. And they would like to see if they can achieve enough of their objectives at the negotiating table to warrant avoiding the, the bloodbath that could follow if the sides really slug it out for control of Afghanistan. And that should be propelling, it does propel every party to the table, absolutely, including the Taliban. So it doesn't guarantee that they or anyone else will make all the concessions that are needed to get to peace. But that is what's causing them to explore this possibility at the table. For sure. I really appreciate your perspective on this. And, and having worked on the process for so many years, you bring such detail to the table that really, I think, our listeners value. Johnny Walsh, a senior expert on Afghanistan at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Johnny, thank you again for your time. It's great talking to you, Trey. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.